because that, as I was as I was preparing the sermon today, that is what I I thought about. Um, we look at the Old Testament. We see all the things that happened to the children of Israel, everything that they went through, um, and how much better we have it today. Uh, now, honestly, I was tempted this morning to go to Ecclesiastes and preach on the verse that said there's nothing new under the sun because when I started doing my sermon preparation, I the passage that I came to was Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, if you've been here, you know that Pastor has already preached entirely through the book of Nehemiah. Um, but I'm going to preach on it anyway, because honestly, if there's anything here and now that is truly original with me, you should probably be kicking me out, right? Um, Nehemiah chapter 9 is the culmination of God bringing the children of Israel back into the land of Israel. They've already rebuilt their temple. They've already rebuilt their wall. And about a month prior to this, they basically rediscovered the word of God. They rediscovered what God said and who he was and what he had done for them. And so all of Nehemiah chapter 9 is their is their confession to God about who he is and what he has done and who they are and how much they need him. <clears throat> now, today, I'm not going to say that this is going to be a short sermon, but I'm going to try to shorten it from what my wife had to listen to last night. <laughs> you should be saying amen right now, honey. <laughs> Okay, as we go through their confession, and I'm going to let Scripture speak, speak for itself, okay? We, we are going to be reading most all of this chapter, but we're also going to be looking at passages that show us that the promises that we have now, the, the connection that we have with God now is so much bigger and so much better than the children of Israel had even at that time. Uh, so the first point, and we're gonna, just going to jump right into this. Hang on. It's going to be a fun, maybe rough ride through this morning. But they start, and they start by praising God for who he is and what he has done. And they start with God's act of creation. Nehemiah chapter 9 uh, starting in the middle of verse 5, where that their song of confession starts. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Now I want to match this to promises that we find in the New Testament, things that we find in the New Testament. And for as far as the create as far as the creation aspect, you know, we're pretty much on the 
on the same page as Israel. Uh, either turn with me or, or you can just listen to me read it. We're going to be flipping back and forth. Uh, flip over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Um, listen what the New Testament has to say about Christ. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Um, that act of creation, when God originally created the world, you think about all our technology today from sliced bread all the way up to the atomic bomb, uh, he put that original creativity in that creation. Um, there's nothing, there's no technological advancement that we have made today that wasn't, that the possibility wasn't allowed for there in the very beginning. But it's not just that he is it's not just that he created everything and then just let it go. No, he's actively holding everything together. By him, all things consist. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't want God to let go of me. Not spiritually, but not physically either. I referred to the atomic bomb. Uh, that's literally matter coming apart. Uh, God has this tendency of, if we want something bad enough, he lets, us, he lets us mess with it just so we know how bad it can actually be, right? Uh, now, I'm, I'm just saying this without, without having uh, necessarily proof of this, but hey, if God just decided at this point he's going to stop holding matter together, I think the atomic bomb was a pretty good, pretty good example of, of what would happen. He, he can just let it go and let it rip apart. Now, I'm not saying that to scare anybody or anything. but um, So God is the creator. He's created everything. Uh, he's the boss. He gets to make the rules. Now, they understood that. We understand that. But from here on out, everything gets bigger and better for us, really. The next thing that, that they recount is that God is a God who keeps his promises. Look at uh, verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You gave him, a you gave him and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. God is a God who keeps his promises. Now, how do we have a better promise than what they had? Now, they were, they were looking in the, in the past and the nation of Israel, their entire nation was based on the promise that God gave to Abraham that he was going to rise, 
make a nation uh, out of Abraham and out of Abraham's family. We have an older promise that we look back to. Back before Abraham, back even before Noah. And that older promise is this. When God was kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, when he was first passing judgment on them, uh, he passed judgment on Adam, he passed judgment on Eve, and then he passed judgment on the servant, on the on the serpent that had a role in the deception of Eve. And his promise to this serpent, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Most scholars agree that this is the first reference that we see to Christ. Uh, he, the first reference that there is going to be a deliverer, uh, someone who's going to provide salvation. And that's the promise that we go back to. We have the same creator God, but we're going back to an older promise, a promise that he made before he even said anything about the nation of Israel. So he's a God that keeps his promises. Whatever God says, he does. Whether it was talking about Abraham making a nation out of Abraham or whether it was the promise he made to the serpent, hey, I'm going to put enmity between the woman's seed and your seed and he's going to crush your head, but you're going to bruise his heel. Um, we have that promise. I think most of you probably know where that promise is going. But the next thing that they recount in their confession, uh, their, their national confession, as it were, uh, was that they realized that God was mighty to save. For the children of Israel, this is going back to their deliverance from Egypt. Verse 9, you saw... Th you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself, as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. Their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty waters. So when, they, when the children of Israel looked back to God, God being mighty to save, they always looked back to the Red Sea. They always looked to that to God pulling them out of the land of Egypt, out of their slavery, out of the death that awaited, for the, awaited them in, in Egypt. However, what do we look to? If we have something that's bigger and better, what do we look to? Most of you already know. The answer to that is Jesus. We have Jesus. Turn over to Romans chapter... Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And listen to what essentially is our exodus. Uh, this is God 
proving to us that he is mighty to save for us. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath to come through him. For if we were enemies, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is our exodus. The children of Israel, when they were in bondage to Egypt, um, they were living in death daily. What did God do? He sent a deliverer. He sent Moses to show his signs, to show his wonders, and to pull them out of Egypt. Not only to save them from death, but to bring them into life, to bring them into a relationship with himself as a nation. Um, Jesus has done the same thing for us. He came. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was then taken and nailed to a cross for sins he did not commit, namely our sins. Dying, he took the death that we deserved and then being resurrected showed us the life that is now ours in Christ. God is mighty to save. He hasn't left us in our death, in our sin. Uh, He desires each and every one of us to come to him, to know him through that death that his son died and through the life that his son now lives. So God is mighty to save. But of course it doesn't stop there. Not only is he mighty to save, the children of Israel realize that even as he saved them, he gave them instruction and direction for where they were supposed to go and what they were supposed to do. Verse 12 in Nehemiah chapter 9. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. Um, They were given by God. They were given two things to help them after he delivered them. They were given that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that guided them, guided their steps through the desert, but they were also given the law. They were 
given those Ten Commandments that Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get, um, they had all these things. Now, we have something better. We have the law, which Moses received. We have the prophets, which continually spoke to the children of Israel. We have the Gospels. So right there, we're starting to get better. We have the Gospels showing us the life that Christ lived and the death that he died and what he did for us. We have the epistles and the rest of the New Testament that uh, God has given for our instruction and for, for our living the Christian life. But we even have something better than that. Jesus, right before he left, uh, this is John chapter 16, verse 7. He's talking to his disciples, preparing them for his death, resurrection, and eventual departure from this earth. And he says, hey, guess what? It's good that I leave. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, who's he talking about? Who is this person that he's talking about? The Holy Spirit. Um, in, in Israel's day, as, as best as I could understand it, God's Spirit was there, but he was there, he rested on a person for a time, and then he was gone. And God's Spirit nationally led Israel, but individually, everyone was still bound by that priest and sacrifice system. Uh, that's how they met God. It's not so with us. That pillar of fire by night, that pillar of cloud by day that led the children of Israel, that now comes to reside in us. God's Holy Spirit comes in and resides in us and guides and directs our steps if we allow it. Right? So God is their creator. God keeps his promises. God is mighty to save. God provides them instruction and direction. But he doesn't just provide for their spiritual needs, right? He also provides for their, spirit, for their, for their physical needs. And we're going to go over this real quick, even though we maybe spend way too much time worrying, way more time worrying about this part than we should. Verse 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their, for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. God provides for their needs, not just their, their overriding spiritual needs, but their, their everyday needs, their food, their water, their clothes. He provides for all of it. Jesus said something very similar to this in Matthew chapter 6. Verses 26 and 30. You know, I'm not even going to turn there because he basically says, hey, if God takes care of the birds, if God takes care of the grass of the field, 
how much more is he going to take care of you? I think sometimes we make the mistake of we, we trust God with our souls. We trust him with the things that are totally, completely out of our control. But do we trust him with the everyday mundane things? Do we trust him that he will provide our next meal, that he will provide the clothes on our backs, that he will provide for where we live and what we do and our entire livelihood? Do we depend on him for that? Uh, The children of Israel realized that, hey, everything that they had, it came from God. And you know what? The same thing is true for us. Okay, so now it really starts to get fun. And I, and I do mean that. Um, I, I was excited when I started to realize the, the parallels between this confession of the children of Israel and where we are today and what we're doing today. The next thing that they noticed about God and that they confess to God, is God has an active patience. I think you'll see what I mean. But when, this is verse 16, but when our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments, they refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did, not, that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them to show them light in the way they should go. And you also gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Um, flip over with me to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. In relation to the active patience of God, uh, think about this. We'll start in verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, as I was thinking about this, all the way from the Exodus, when they were brought out of Egypt to the exile, that was a little over 500 years of history there. 500 years, God patiently waited for them to come back. 500 years before he decided that he would pass judgment 
and kick them out of the land of Israel and put them uh, into exile. Uh, During all that time, God was not just sitting back and twiddling his thumbs. What was he doing? He was still providing for their needs. He was still providing food and clothing and shelter for them. He was still providing his spirit to draw them back into a relationship with him. 500 years he waited for them. 500 years before passing judgment. How many years has it been since Christ was crucified? Almost 2,000 years. God is being actively patient in this time, wanting people to come to him. Wanting people to come back to a relationship with him. Um, How is he doing that? Well, he's still allowing us to live. He hasn't just let us go. He's still providing for our food and our clothing and our water and everything that we have. God is still providing that, whether we realize it's him or not. But also, he is using his Holy Spirit to draw the world to him. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. God is actively drawing people to himself. Now, what's the other way that he's actively being patient? We have a part in it, and actually it's, it's in our mission statement on that, back, on that backboard, where Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples. We, as the children of God, as the church of God, get to be a part of the active patience of God that continually pointing the world to God, drawing the world to God, drawing them into the relationship that we have with God and with Christ, right? God is being actively patient. He only waited 500 years for the children of Israel. For the world, he's waited over 2,000. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes get impatient if the web page that I'm loading doesn't load within 10 seconds. God is patient, but he's not going to wait forever. So, he has this active patience in drawing people to himself. The next thing that the children of Israel noticed is that God provides an inheritance for them. Verse 22 in Nehemiah chapter 9, Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So you took possession of the land of Sihon and the, king, the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven and brought them into the land which you told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And you took strong, and they took strong cities and rich land and possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. 
So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. <clears throat> now, this is, this is what national Israel looked to as their inheritance. God saved them out of Egypt, brought them into a relationship with himself, instructed them in the way they should go, and then provided for them the inheritance that he had for them, and that was the land of Israel. Now, what about us? Bigger and better, remember? Well, let's look at what Jesus said. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus again talking to his disciples, readying them for when he was going to leave. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, as I, was, as I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about the nation of Israel and the inheritance that they got, God used, really, he used the Canaanites, a, pain, a pagan, sinful nation, to prepare the land of Israel for what would eventually be the children of Israel's inheritance. Think about that. God used a pagan sinful nation to, pro to create their inheritance. Now, what does he say about our inheritance? I'm going to prepare a place for you. The children of Israel looked forward to a land that had been prepared for them by God, but through the Canaanites. We look forward to a future to a place that has been prepared by God's own hand. So much better. So much bigger. So much more wonderful than, than anything the children of Israel could have even thought of. And it's ours. This is a great time to be living. Now, not only did he provide them the inheritance, but... He also provides them correction repeatedly, again and again and again. Uh, verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time, and in their time of, tr uh, and in the time of their trouble, when you cry, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliver deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil in. They again did evil before you. Therefore, you let. You left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. 
and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law, yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man shall li- if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, your great mercy, nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. One thing that I notice about God is that when he loves something and when he cares for something, when he cares for someone, he does not leave them alone. And how much more true is that for us who have been given the opportunity to become God's own children? The, the parallel passage to this is Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse, starting in verse 5. Um, my son... I guess this is the second, the, the middle part, middle of verse five. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have, had, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? As God's child, God is going to correct you. We may be in position by the blood of Christ, guiltless before God. But now in this body, perhaps it's just me, but we're not perfect. And God is not content to just leave us where we are, leave us with our sinful habits and our sinful patterns, Leave us in the control. Leave us. He's not content to leave us in that sin which controls us. Rather, he chastens us. He convicts us. He guides us by, many times it seems, whatever means necessary to bring us back to himself. Now, there's a, there's a caution here that we need to consider. If God is not chastening you, whose kid are you anyway? Right. If you're not, if God is not chasing after if, after you, if He's not convicting you, uh, trust me, you haven't arrived. You might just not be His kid. 
that's a question you have to answer for yourself. If you find yourself there today, it's never too late to run back. You're not dead yet. Final judgment hasn't been passed yet. Now, speaking of judgment, we're coming down to the end of it. As we're coming down to the end of the children of Israel's confession, uh, they realize that everything God has done to this point, and they're looking back on what happened to, to them and to their parents as they were sent into exile into Babylon, and they are saying, hey, God, this isn't a small thing, but we know you are absolutely perfect in what you have done. You are just when you judge. Verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings and upon us, our kings and our princes, our prophets, priests and our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, which you with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. <clears throat> now, God's judgment on the children of Israel for rejecting what they had, for rejecting what he had said, it was severe. They had their, they had their inheritance and because of their continual refusal to follow God, he judged them and took that inheritance away from them. Um, he had freed them from bondage in Egypt, and because they continually refused to turn back to him, he returned them to that bondage. As we think about that, Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Or maybe just listen. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Now that's just talking about the law that Moses was given and the law that the children of Israel were supposed to follow. Um, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, <clears throat> both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. If the children of Israel who had all the signs and wonders that God had done before, who had the deliverance that was offered to them from Egypt and from bondage, if they had all these things 
and yet turned away from God. And their judgment was severe. They lost that inheritance. They returned to the bondage which they had left. How much more the person who turns from what Christ has done? How much more severe the punishment for the person who turns away from the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I would like to, it would be, it would be easier for me if the Bible left this up to the imagination. See, the children of Israel, they were looking back on a judgment that already happened. We, unfortunately, get to look forward. We get to look at a judgment which is yet to happen. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, and listen to the just judgment that God is going to pour out on this world. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. You see right now, there are books being written about our lives. Books being written about how we chose to spend our time, how we chose to use what God had given us, and it's all being recorded. But there's another book in heaven. really the only book that really matters, and that's the book of life. That is reserved for the people who have turned to Jesus as their only way of salvation, who have turned from their sin, from their striving to do everything their own way and turn to Jesus Christ. If your name is in that book, this final judgment is not something that we need to worry about. If you're here and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your name is in that book of life. Now, the books are still being written. It's still being recorded. You're still going to receive rewards for what you did or didn't do in your lifetime. But that judgment that casting into the eternal lake of fire, that's not something you need to worry about. Um, If you haven't, if you haven't given your life to 
to God if you haven't realized that Jesus Christ came to save you. And he would have come for only you. Um, Settle that today. Don't wait. We don't know when our last day, when our last breath is coming. God is just in his judgment. And so in response to everything that they knew about God, which really the children of Israel had just relearned, in response to all of that, they cry out to God at the very end of this confession and say, God, we have sinned. Save us. Here we are, verse 36. Here we are, servants today. God, this is where we are. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. We are slaves when we should be free, God. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, our priests, and our priests seal it. There are two possible courses of action that I believe really everyone who is here today needs to take. First, if you don't know Christ as your Savior. Listen to what Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13 are saying to you. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is offering us and has offered us and does offer us really a way to cheat death, to to no longer be controlled by those sinful desires that, that seem to so easily trip us up, that by the death that is there, by the separation that is there because of our sin, between us and God. Right now, if you're here today and you don't know you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says that your sins have separated you from God. Jesus is the way to break that separation, to bridge that gap. He has completely, 100%, already paid the penalty for everything that you have done and everything that you will do. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is in your life if you will let it. 
If you don't know him, I pray that you come to him today. Now, I know there are a lot of, a lot of people here who have accepted Christ, who are saved, who have their name already written in that book of life, and that's great. But maybe what's not so great is the relationship you know you should have with God. It's not there yet. To you, turn to another passage that Pastor has preached on recently. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember, God is your Father. God's going to correct you. God wants you to come back and be in a closer relationship with him. Don't wait to come back. Don't wait. We don't know how much time we have. Um, The children of Israel were, were warned repeatedly, again and again and again, come back to me or judgment will be passed. Remember, God's a God who keeps his promises. It's appointed unto us, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. When God judges you, what will he see? Will he see the blood of Christ? Will he see his child? Or will he see one who has rejected him, rejected his gift, rejected the way that he made to have a relationship with himself? Sorry we went long, but I hope this has got you thinking. Let's pray, and then let's go continue to have a relationship with God. Father, you love us. You love us so much that you sent your son to die for us. You love us so much that you will not leave us alone to wallow in our sin but you will make a way of escape for us. We Father, Father, we thank you for that way of escape through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you of that way of escape that you continually make from the sins that, complete, that continuously trip us up. Father, as we draw near to you, draw near to us. Be that Father that we need. And let us be the children that you desire, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.